Hey, this is David Perkins, pastor of Radiant Church. Thanks so much for checking out our podcast. I hope and I pray that the content helps you grow as a follower of Jesus. We'd love to see you at one of our services on Sundays or maybe at our Bold Conference this summer. Remember this, those who look to Him are radiant. Good morning, you doing well today? All right. Hey, let's pray, and then we're going to jump right into it this morning. If you, um, if you want to, if you're like me and you always are looking ahead, um, you can open up your app or your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 6. We'll get there in a moment, but uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in, all right? So, okay, I was a youth pastor for a decade, so you can talk when I'm preaching. It's okay. Um, You're not going to mess me up, I promise. So let's pray. Jesus, we love you. God, we thank you that your word is alive and it's active, God, that it's not passive, that it's still changing lives today. So Jesus, as we open up your word and we, we look at how it affects our lives, God, that our hearts will be transformed. God, that it wouldn't be just transfer information, God, but it would be transformation in our lives. In Jesus' name. And all of Radiant Church said amen. 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 So, all right, I want to talk to you a little bit about this unique story in the the history of the nation of Israel, and it's this transitionary period, and I thought it felt so fitting, even as a church, as we're moving forward and we're in this transition time period of, hey, we've got a few more weeks here at Overland Trail Middle School, and then we'll be moving into a new space and to increase our capacity to help us reach people. So I thought this story, this time period in the nation was so, there were so many parallels, it's this, it's this section of scripture where David has just become the king and he's trying to transition. He's trying to, to bring the ark of the nation back to Jerusalem where, it had, where whereas it had been in the Philistine camp for, for years, for a while. And it's this moment where David is going, okay, I need to bring this thing that's so much more than a national treasure it's not just like the, the Declaration of Independence or the Statue of Liberty. It's so much more to the Israelites than that. It's, it's literally the, represents the presence of God on the earth. So it's more the national symbol. It's like national symbol, spiritual symbol, all rolled into this one item. And we see David becoming king. And one of his first things that he's doing is, hey, how can we bring this ark back? I don't want to lead the people without the presence of God with our people. We see in Psalm 132, we see this passion that David has. He goes, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. There is going to be no rest for me until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. It's this moment where he goes, I'm going to do whatever it takes to bring the ark back. And David, growing up as as an Israelite, would have known the history of the ark, maybe even probably better than most of us, that he would have known that that Moses, when they were in the Exodus, built the ark, built this box to to house the presence of God, that it was going to store the Aaron's rod that butted a copy of the Ten Commandments and a jar of manna, and it was going to be housed in this box that was going to be overlaid with gold and have cherubim on top and all of these things. And it was going to represent God's manifest presence on the earth. 
But over time, what had happened is that the, the ark, instead of representing the presence of God, started representing maybe just the favor of God. When they started building out their military campaigns, taking new ground, what happened is they would lose a battle, bring the ark out, and then they would win. So after year after year of this kind of behavior, the cyclical behavior, we're going into battle. We need to win. What do we do? We bring the ark out and then we win. The ark starts representing really kind of like a good luck charm more than God's presence. And it's this time period where all of a sudden Saul's last battle, he loses the ark to the Philistines and it stays there. And God breaks out against the Philistines that God's presence is supposed to be with the people of God, not with others. And it's the Philistines send it back out and it stops in this little town, this little border town called kirith Jerium. And that's where we found, find ourselves right here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. It says, And David and all of the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. In Chronicles, it actually says 30,000 people. Now, either way you split it, whether you're looking at Samuel or Chronicles, you're looking like a national holiday. This is a big deal. This is like parades, fireworks. This is like everything you could imagine as far as like a national celebration. And they're celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and other weird instruments that we don't use and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Yuzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took a hold of it. For the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Yuza, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Yuza, and the place is called Perez Yuza to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. These six verses are just jam-packed with information and backstory about the ark and this transportation moment, this moment of transition for the nation. You see, we, we know David, we know his story. So many of us are familiar with it, no matter what our background is. We see, we know him as the shepherd boy who, who defeated Goliath and all of a sudden became this powerful military leader, this commander of armies. I mean, they're singing songs about David that he has killed 10,000s compared to the king's thousands. I mean, David is essentially celebrity status among the nation of Israel. There is no bigger icon. It's like LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Kobe, all of them rolled into like one person. I'm a basketball fan, just in case you didn't pick that up. And they're celebrating all of his victories over and over and over again. David becomes king, brings the nation back. He's anointed in Judah. He's anointed in Israel. He brings the two, two parts of the kingdom together. And his first act is, I'm bringing the ark back. Massive celebration, huge deal. And then incredibly, a massive public failure. And we see David grappling with that moment. 
that is not just a, a, oh, I don't know what to do. Let's just keep going. Let's just keep getting it there. Let's just finish the job. It's like, no, 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 no. Their moment is past. It is over. It is David freaking out and going, I don't know what to do. So here, I got a great idea. We're still 10 miles away from Jerusalem. Let's just park the ark in this guy's house. Like, we don't know. There was no relationship pre, prior to this moment between David and Obed-Edom. It's just a house who's there. He's the king and says, hey, we're going to commandeer your house. Oh, and by the way, don't touch it because it'll kill you. <laughs> we had to learn that one the hard way. You know what I mean? It's like this moment. Like, does Obed-Edom have kids? Like, good luck telling your kid not to touch something. Like, I've got three. My youngest right now, you look at him and say no, he'll be like, okay. 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 Like, what? Is, think about this moment contextually. So many of us, I think, if we're not careful, I'm sure you all are much better Bible scholars than I am, that you read the text and you can just dive right into it. I have to detach the context a little bit so I can get into the moment of what, the, what they were actually feeling and going through emotionally in the text. So many of us like to backseat drive the Bible. You know what I mean? We know what's happening in the context and like the story of David and Goliath, for example. Oh, we know he wins. So there's no, like, there's no tension in that story for us because we just are like, oh, we know David wins. Like there's no, so when we read this moment, we have to read it with the tension that's there in the text. And it's this idea of backseat driving the Bible. You guys know what I'm talking about? So here, let me give you an example. So my kids just recently realized that there are gauges on the dash of my car. Um, yeah, exactly. So now they can like speak into the manner in which I'm driving, which is lots of fun. <laughs> but my son in particular, my oldest, he's decided that he's going to pay supreme attention to my gas gauge. And every time it gets below a half a tank, he's like, Dad do you know the, what that E stands for? <laughs> like, yes, I've literally been driving for three times your life. Like, <laughs> yes, I know what that E stands Then it doesn't stop. He is un... It stands for empty, Dad. <laughs> yep. Yes, this is like, I promise, these are real conversations. Yes, that's what it stands for. You're past the line, Dad. You're, you're going to need gas. Like, I, I, listen, I literally have hundreds of miles left. He's like, are we going to make it to school? Like, your school is a mile from our house. I could make that trip 270 times. He's like, are you going to guess before you pick me up? I'm like, son, buddy, I got it. But that's what we do to the Bible. When we're reading the text, we, we just go, oh, well, of course David failed. He did it wrong. We know he did it wrong. He's doing it wrong. See, he's, he's not doing it the right way. And we just remove the tension of the moment. And when we remove the tension, we actually remove some of our ability to glean revelation for what's happening in these people's lives. David was so afraid in this moment of failure, user reaches out and he dies because he touched it because they were moving it on a cart. They had to move this thing miles. A cart just makes sense. Like, use a cart. Why wouldn't you use a car? Why wouldn't you use ox? 
Like no one wants to carry around a 300 pound box for 10 miles. But David is, fails in this moment and then all of a sudden he is reeling. It says that he stashes it in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now the a Gittite is a person from the city or town of Gath. There was another famous person from Gath, Goliath. So David is so afraid in this moment and so reeling from his failure, he takes the most precious thing to the entire nation and stores it in the town of his most famous enemy. Like that is terrified. That is, I didn't fail, I am a failure. That is, I can't do this anymore. There is no moving on past this moment. I've got to stop. And we see the ark stays with Obed-Edom for three months. Like, talk about shaking off a loss. For three months, the ark, he's just like, get it away. I, can't, I cannot handle this. I, cannot, I'm, I can't deal with this yet. David ran the risk of allowing a failure to turn him into a failure. And so many of us, when we look at the life of David, we think about his successes and we think about Goliath and the military victories and and providing for the temple to be built and all of these incredible things throughout the history of the life of David. And if we're not careful, we'll gloss over his failures. Because one of the things that I love most about studying the life of David is not just his victories, it's seeing how he responded to moments of failure. Because no matter what happened in David's life, no matter what failure he was presented with, he did not allow that moment in time to define his identity moving forward. Over and over again, you see him failing, pausing, essentially resetting his mind, resetting his mental framework and saying, that's not who I am. I know that happened, but that's not who I am. So God, create in me a clean heart and renew an upright spirit in me. We see failure, reset, failure, reset, failure, reset. And the beauty of the life of David is that he perpetually was willing to reset his mind every time he failed. Because no matter what we do in this life, eventually you and I will fail at something. It's inevitable. The question is not when we fail. The question is how will we respond when we fail? David had to reset his mind. There's a moment for each of us when we have to look at our scenario and look at our situations. Maybe it's what your mother said about you. Maybe it's what your father said you were. Maybe it's your job or your career or your family dynamics or whatever it may be. And all of a sudden your identity is beginning to be shaped and formed around these external circumstances, these external things that have happened to you. Instead of allowing Jesus, to establish your identity. So in a moment of failure, do you allow yourself to become that failure or do you say, no, 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 that's not who I am in Christ Jesus. I am a child of God. Where do we land on that moment? Are we, are we willing to hit the reset button in our lives? It's amazing. I have a love-hate relationship with computers. You guys, anybody with me? 
Here's why I, I hate computers. I love them because they're, they're awesome. They do so many things. You know why I hate them? Because if they're acting up, you know what they tell you to do? Turn it off. Turn it back on. I'm like, that is the dumbest solution ever. Like, you want me just to turn it off and turn it back on, and then it's going to work right? Yes. Nothing has changed about the scenario, but you reset it, and guess what? Now, all of a sudden, it works right. I'm a relatively intelligent person, and that makes no sense. Like, nothing has changed about the computer. Nothing has changed about the way that it's operating. Nothing has changed about the system, the structure. Any, nothing has changed about the history. Nothing has changed. But when the moment you hit reset, all of a sudden, it can start working right again. My question this morning is, when you look back on a week ago, a month ago, a decade ago, what are the things and the moments in your past that you're still living in because you haven't been willing to hit reset? Because God wants you to reset your mind. God wants you to reframe the way that you're thinking about things because you are not your failures. You are a child of God. And then if we're willing to hit the reset button, what happens is all of a sudden everything can change. Let's keep looking at the text and see how this works out. As we keep going in 2 Samuel 6, 11, and it says that the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all the things that belong to him because of the ark of God. What I love about this is the, in the sentence structure. There is just absolutely just clear causality happening here. What do I mean by that? I mean, the verse says, this happened because of this. So we know what happened and we know why it happened, right? So Obed-Edom's household was blessed because of the ark. He didn't have the ark because his house was blessed. You see, God's presence represented by the ark was resting in Obed-Edom's house. And because God's presence was resting there, God's blessing could also rest there. And don't get hung up here. The Obed-Edom is not a famous person. There is not, Kirajirim is not a famous town. This is like a border town between Israel and Philistia. Like there's nothing good happening in these towns. And all of a sudden we see the ark of God resting there. God's blessing resting there because of his presence. And then it makes it all, the news of this makes it all the way up to the king. Like, that's how powerful a moment this was in the, in the household of Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom had this opportunity as David is, is kind of watching what's happening. What's going to happen with the ark? Are more people going to die? Is, is God going to break out even more uh, in our nation when we're trying to bring this back? There's this moment where everyone's watching what's happening, and all of a sudden, God's presence is resting. And then we see God's blessing. But if we're not careful, we'll flip the order. And we'll be looking and striving and hoping for God's blessings without his presence actually resting. 
And we fall into this trap of getting so busy trying to do and achieve and strive and make all of these things happen in our lives when the whole time, the key, the secret, the thing that we're missing out on is if we will just allow God's presence to rest in our homes, in our lives, everything else takes care of it. Everything else is taken care of. Jesus even said it like this. He said, if you will seek me, heart, everything else will be added to you. The focus isn't the other things, isn't not the externals. The focal point is, is my presence resting in your home and in your life. One of my greatest fears is really succeeding in a whole lot of things that don't really matter. And some of us, if we're not careful in 2020, the United States of America, we will absolutely focus on succeeding in things that don't actually matter in this life, that we will picture success in the viewpoint of our job title, of the amount of followers that we have on whatever social media platform you choose, or what's in our bank account, or what zip code do we live in, and we, we start to measure success through the eyes of these external situations and circumstances instead of saying, no, no, no. success looks like God's presence resting in my life that I know him and I'm known by him. And that is the mark of success in this life. We have to rest. We have to allow his presence to rest. The problem is when we don't allow our minds to be reset, we actually act like we're stuck in the mud somewhere. Growing up in Outside of Cincinnati, and summer break, I would uh, do odd jobs. I would do construction work and stuff like that. And one summer, um, it was the second worst summer of my life. I decided to go be a, um, uh, it was a hard job, a uh, concrete worker. Um, so, you know, I'm 15, 16 years old, and I'm raking concrete all day long in the summer. And it's just a terrible job. But what happens is, over the course of time, I don't know if you've ever done this, like, kudos to you, you are Awesome if you do that. And, but I would get, you'd have big boots, you get in the concrete, and the concrete starts to dry over the course of the day. So it only gets harder and harder to take steps. So over time, if you're not careful, you're, you're in the concrete, and if you're not taking steps, and you're not moving forward, you actually get stuck in the moment in the past. Like you get stuck, and you have to keep moving forward. So what happens at the end of every day, you have to spray off your boots, if not, your boots become covered in concrete and get heavier and heavier and heavier every day you wear them. So all of a sudden, it's not that you don't want to move forward. It's now that your boots are stuck and weighed down by pounds of concrete. It's way harder to move forward. So now instead of just moving your foot, it takes like 15, 20 pounds to move your foot forward. But if you stop, you rest, you can reset those boots, you can clean them off, and now all of a sudden you can actually walk forward normally. The same thing happens in our lives. If we don't reset our mind, it will be much harder for us to allow God's presence to rest in our lives. And it's this moment where we can look at the life of David and go, okay, not only did he fail, not only did he do those things, but he, he stopped, he reset his mind. It took David three months to reset his mind. It is not a one-time deal. It is not something you're like, hey, I'm going to push a button. I'm going to reset my mind. It's going to be, no, no, no. It's like, it's a process. 
It's what Paul wrote in taking every thought captive and making it submit, making it an obedient to Christ. So when you're going through, you're transitioning and you're going, okay, I'm trying to reset up my mind so I can rest in the Lord. It's going, no, no, that thought comes in that your parents said to you, that your coworker said to you, that your spouse said to you, whatever it is, what, that failure that keeps, you keep rehearsing in your mind comes up and you go, no, 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 I'm, I'm gonna reset. That is not who the Lord says I am. God, I'm gonna rest in your presence. I'm gonna, I'm gonna declare your truth. I'm gonna spend time with you so that my mind can be refreshed as I rest in your presence. And as we allow God's presence to rest, what happens is our identity becomes more solidified. Once you hit reset, then you rest. Now here's the catch about resting. Now this is, the term rest, I think, is a really loaded term. It's a little word. It's only four letters, but it's, it's loaded because I think there are three ways people tend to think about rest, and I think two of them are wrong. I think that some people look at rest like that's all you ever need to do. I don't know. I don't need to do anything. I just need to rest in the Lord. I just need to spend time with him. That's, that's all I ever, ever need to do. In my opinion, here's what happens in those moments that we actually become spiritual swamps. That there's only inroads and no outflows. And as Christ followers, we're supposed to have inflows and outflows because we're supposed to reach other people. And if we're, we're not allowing God's presence to flow out of us and all we're doing is resting him, we're missing, we're missing half of the equation. The second piece, the second um, obstacle with rest is this, is that people who will say, I don't need to rest. And they go, I'm going to make a difference. And they have a, they have a right heart, but they're like, I'm just gonna go. I'm gonna run, I'm gonna, I'm gonna change the world, I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna go, 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 I'm gonna go. And they never stop to actually allow God's presence to rest in their heart. Eventually, they feel overextended, exhausted, tired, burnt out, whatever, whatever you could be feeling in that moment because you weren't adequately allowing God's presence to rest in your life. Which leads to the third point, which I hope is where most of us are at today, is that there is a healthy balance of activity and rest. We don't, we don't strive to make God love us. We don't strive to experience his presence. We allow his presence in our life to evoke change around us. So my question is, is it, it's, it's really easy, in my opinion, to get really busy doing things for God that you actually miss having a relationship with him. And my hope is that when your alarm goes off on Monday morning or when whatever it is, your schedule is that you, you're stopping and you're saying, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I wanna know him. I wanna know his word. So I'm gonna read the Bible. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my Devo. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna worship. I'm gonna lift up the name of Jesus before I do anything else. And then I'm gonna go out and then I'm gonna evoke change. And then I'm gonna make a difference. And then I'm gonna serve and reach people. But it's not, I'm doing this so that I can experience God's presence. It's I'm experiencing his presence so that I can be effective when I do this. It's order, it's causality. The ark rested in the home of Obedidim. When you stop and you look at the text, do you ever wonder why, why didn't the ox work? Why didn't the cart work? I mean, I'm, 
I'm far too operationally like minded to, uh, to like really like grab a hold of that and not notice that. It's, but here's what happened is when Moses built the ark in the Exodus, there was this very specific way the ark was supposed to be transported. It was by the Levites. They were supposed to have it on poles of acacia wood and they were, gonna, they were supposed to carry it on their backs, carry it on their shoulders. Now, like I said earlier, the ark was supposedly, most historians think it weighed somewhere between 288 and 300 pounds. So, I mean, if you got four guys carrying this box, that's 72 to 75 pounds each. Like, that's a heavy job. That's, like, that's a tiresome job. But here's the point that I think as I was praying and, and studying this, here's what I really think the presence of God is meant to be carried by the people of God. And there's no shortcuts to carrying his presence. You are called to carry the presence of God to this world. That Paul wrote in Corinthians that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So if we're called to carry, if we're called and to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple of God on this earth, and we are meant to, to house, to carry the presence of God, there are no shortcuts to that. And if we're not willingly carving out space in our lives for the presence of God, we're going to fill it with things that don't have as much value. So I've been married for almost 12 years. Any, any decade over married groups and couples? Groups, couples. So, all right, that's awesome. Um, so when we were first um, engaged, we do what every engaged couple does, and we register, right? How I many of you guys, that's a brilliant thing to have engaged people do together. Go pick out all the stuff you're ever going to own. Here you go. Like, do it in an afternoon, too, because that's the best way. Um, it is setting people up to succeed. Um, so Rachel and I are doing this process and, uh, you know, we're going through, they give you these, you know, little scanner guns and you're, you know, shooting barcodes and all this stuff. And, um, you get to have all these wonderful conversations in that process. So we're, we're going through this and we're, you know, at the stores or, you know, whatever. And I'm going through and we're trying to like pick out pots and pans and things. And I'm like, I'm picking up a pot. I'm like, Hey, what about this one? She's like, no, what is wrong with this pot? It's a good pot. She said, no, it's just not right. And I was like, okay, moving on. What about this one? Nope, no, it's not right. It's not good enough. I'm like, what do you mean it's not good enough? Like, what is the difference? So after many conversations um, and long moments at Bed Bath Beyond or somewhere, I f we figured out that all of a sudden, here's what, here's what we're looking for. And when I say we, I meant Rachel, but you know. <laughs> Here's what we're looking for. We're looking for the pots that weigh the most. And I was like, what? Like, that does not make, that makes zero sense. She said, no, 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 the ones that weigh more are better. I'm like, no, they're not. Like, factually, they're not. Like, look at what they're made out of. Look at the metal. Look at this type of metal. Like, I'm a raging type A if you haven't picked that up. Like, this is better. She's like, no, it's not. The ones that weigh more are better. The ones that weigh more are not better. You know what I mean? We're having all these conversations. And it's finally, I did what every wise, you know, 25-year-old would do. And I just switched gears. And I said, is this one heavy enough? Like, <laughs> nope. Okay. Uh, but I had a bullseye then. So I was like, okay, is this one heavy enough? And eventually I found pots and we found pans that were heavy enough. I went straight for cast iron. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding, I didn't really. But in Rachel's mind in that moment, there was no detaching weight 
with value. And when we're called as Christians to carry the presence of God, we can't separate weight and value. So I love what we're studying the Bible in the Old Testament when even in Solomon, when he wrote the book Ecclesiastes and he talks about vanity of vanity, the Hebrew language is shaped on creating images with words. And when he's saying it's all worth nothing, he's, he's describing an imagery of pulling up a bucket of water from a well and you pull it up, you do all the work to bring the bucket up to the surface and then the bucket's empty. There's no weight to it. And when we're spending time and we're trying to hone our lives and and shift our lives and bend it around the presence of God so that we can carry his presence, if we don't give proper weight, if we don't give proper value to his presence resting in our lives, we won't have value to bring to the world. We're called to be carriers of his presence. But we have to give it proper weight. We have to allow it to rest on our hearts and on our lives. And that only happens when we stop long enough to lock eyes with Jesus and say, Jesus, I am going to fix my eyes on you today. I'm going to make the choice today in my life, and I'm going to recommit. I'm going to say, I want your presence to rest in my life. And once we allow God's presence to rest in our life, the most incredible thing happens. There's, a, there's this natural byproduct that happens is that once the presence of God rests in our lives, there begins a natural outflow and we begin to reach for other people. Let me show you what I mean. And it's in First Chronicles 16.38. And it says, and also Obed-Edom and his 68 brothers. It's like first cousins, just when you're reading that. That's like... I love kids, but 68 would be too much. So, so Obed-Edom and his 68 brothers. And while Obed-Edom, the son of Jeduthun and Hosiah, were to be gatekeepers. I love that Obed-Edom was a gatekeeper. He was a door holder. What does that mean? Well, he means he was literally holding the door open for other people to experience God's presence. You see, the story of Obed-Edom is not one of um, religious elite, you know, not this incredible background, not raised up in this imperfect home or anything. The story of Obed-Edom is that he randomly got chosen by David so that the ark would rest in his home. And as Obed-Edom allowed the presence of God, the ark of God to rest in his home, the byproduct is this, that he became a gatekeeper. He became someone who's gonna hold the door open for other people. That it wasn't just, I'm going to allow God's presence to rest in my house and I'm gonna be blessed and it's gonna be awesome. He doesn't stop there. He actually goes another step and says, I'm going to begin holding the door open for other people. If we're not careful, what happens is we stop here. We, we, we cheer on, God, res- help me reset my mind. I don't, wanna, I don't wanna look at myself like a failure. I wanna look at myself like a child of God. Help me reset my mind, Jesus. 
we begin taking steps and we say, God, I want your presence to rest in my home. God, let your presence rest in my life. And then we stop there. And we never take the final step of saying, okay, God, you've done this work in me. And now I'm gonna hold the door open. I'm gonna take these opportunities that I have to hold the door open for other people. I love the parallels of Obed-Edom and David in this moment because you see two very different people. You see two very different lineages. You see very two different career and life trajectories. But you see Obed-Edom holding open the door for others. You see David creating a different style of tabernacle that everyone would have access to, not just the religious elite, so that they could come in and experience God's presence as well. How you hold the door open will look differently than other people. And that's the beauty of it. That we're not a one-size-fits-all approach, that God is a God who creates us uniquely and wonderfully. And because of that, how you hold the door open for other people will look different than other people. Some of you, you're just like, you know what? I'm, actually, I'm gonna join the greeter team. If one of the most spiritual things I can do is hold the door open for other people to experience God's presence, then that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do it literally and figuratively. Some of you, it's gonna be, it's gonna look different. You're gonna be at your work. You're gonna be in your cubicle. And when the person next to you goes, man, he comes in and he's like, oh man, I had a rough weekend. Instead of you glossing your eyes over and going, uh-huh, oh yeah, okay. You know, really, tell me about it. How can, can I pray for you? Some of you with your family members and the situations you have in life, instead of closing them off emotionally, you're gonna open up and you're gonna go, you're gonna be praying for them. And when you're around them, you're actually gonna say something about Jesus. You're actually going to make an invitation of some sort. You're saying, I wanna, I wanna hold the door open for you to experience God's presence. I'm gonna invite you to my small group. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold the door open for you because I don't think you're ready to say yes to coming to a church service, but I think you'll, be, I think you'll say yes to a small group. It's going to look different. Every single situation will be different, but I promise you that one of the most spiritual things you can do in this life is hold the door open for someone else to experience the goodness and the greatness of God's presence on the earth. got to fight the tendency to be self-focused, to be self-oriented. How do I do that? How do I, how do I even know if that's me? Here's just a really easy test, okay? When you see a group photo that you're in, where do your eyes naturally go? Do they go to yourself and you're like, oh, that's a bad photo. That Pun on that one. That is a bad photo. Everyone else looks great. You look bad. It's a bad photo. You look good. Everyone else looks bad. You're like, I got a new profile pic. <laughs> Be 
careful that we're not just looking to ourselves and in ourselves for the validation. Or if we, if we only are looking at our own situation, slowly we can become blind to the situations around us. It's one of the beauties of Jesus, man. He never got so entrapped with what he was doing that he missed the opportunity to look at the people around him. Over and over through the gospels, you see that he was moved with compassion because of the people. You can't be moved with compassion to hold a door open for someone if you're not looking at the people. God is calling us to reach others. What door is God calling you to hold open today? If you would, I just want you to stand on your feet with me this morning. I just want to take a moment. I just want to ask you just, just where are you at in this journey? Where are you at in this process? Maybe you've been feeling like a failure and you need, to, you need to hit reset on your mind. You need to change the way that you've been looking at yourself, your self-talk, your self-identity, that you've been allowing the external circumstances to define you. And today you wanna to move and you wanna say, I'm gonna allow the identity that Christ says about me to define me. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you've been so busy, you haven't taken time and, and who knows how long to allow God's presence to rest in your life. You've been so busy doing things for God, you've missed out on actually being with God. Or maybe you just haven't been reaching. Maybe you've closed yourself off emotionally, you've become detached at work, you've become detached with family, with friends, with neighbors, and you're just like, I'm, just, I'm not gonna worry about them, that's their problem. That's their situation. And you're going with just with a fresh heart today. God, Jesus is calling you to begin reaching out to them. If that's you, I just wanna take a moment, I just wanna pray for you guys this morning. So Jesus, we love you. God, we pray right now. God, that we would begin taking those thoughts captive, that we would take every thought that would try to, to lift itself up in our minds and we would make it obedient to Christ. That Jesus, we would reset our minds and set our identities on you. God, that we would be rooted and established in your presence. That we would allow your presence to rest in our heart, to rest in our lives, Jesus. God, and we would begin to hold doors open for others. We would begin to reach out to the people around us. We would see the heart. We would see your heart. We would see with your eyes the people around us, Jesus. And finally today, if you've never said yes to Jesus and you, I just, I need a reset, but I, I, need, a, I need a holistic reset. I need a whole life reset. And you wanna say yes to following Jesus today, just right where you're at. I just want you to put your hand up in the air. I just wanna pray for you. raise your hand this morning I just want to lead you in this very simple prayer and I know it's not everything you and God need to say to each other but it's a start so if you raise your hand today and say yes to Jesus should we say Jesus save me transform my life I give you everything I give you my life transform my life